Section three of Charles James Fox by Henry Offley Wakeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter one Fox as a Tory. Part three. Conduct such as this from a subordinate official to the first minister of the crown was an insult which no party discipline, however lax, could endure. Yet for some days Lord North took no step waiting perhaps for some expression of regret on the part of fox he little knew the man with whom he had to deal so far from expressing regret or caring at all what the king or his colleagues or indeed the world in general might think of him fox was contemptuously accusing lord north of pusillanimity at the clubs in the following week he returned to the charge and openly attacked him in the house for what he considered his culpable lenity toward the printers this was too much even for the patience of lord north and on the twenty fourth of february his dismissal was notified to fox in the following laconic terms his majesty has thought proper to order a new commission of the treasury to be made out in which i do not see your name in four years and a quarter of parliamentary life fox had been twice in and twice out of office when he so wantonly left the administration in seventeen seventy four he little thought that he had already seen more of official life than he was ever to see again but so it was never again did he hold office for more than eight months at a time and the total number of months which he spent in the service of the crown during the thirty-two years which remained to him of life when put together are only a little more than half of those which he spent in the ministry of lord north it has been sometimes said that fox's behaviour to lord north and his dismissal from office which followed were due not to petulance of temper or to vanity and self-assertion but to a sense of moral superiority which would not permit him any longer to condone the evil with which he found himself involved that it was a true moral instinct which working faithfully if blindly led him to dissociate himself from a hireling crew of sycophants and cast in his lot with chatham and with burke rather than with sandwich or with wedderburn the facts will hardly warrant such a view fox quarrelled with lord north not because he was too much of a tory but because he was not tory enough he led against the minister what in the parliamentary language of modern france would be called the extreme right it was to the hireling crew the placemen and the pensioners that he appealed to force his timid trimmer of a leader to support the dignity of the crown and the privilege of parliament against those who dared to print criticisms on their conduct an honest indignation against parliamentary corruption if felt was certainly singularly well concealed by one who consistently opposed the only act which was efficacious in promoting an impartial trial of election petitions the fact is that it is impossible to dissociate the public life of fox from his private life at this period of his career the one was a mirror of the other both were dominated by the same love of notoriety were actuated by the same impulsive temperament were clouded by the same reckless and cynical contempt for principle it is true that at a later period of his career he acquired strong convictions the great questions brought to the front by the american war deepened and steadied his whole character 
intervals of office taught him something of responsibility but conviction was with him a plant of slow growth to act upon impulse instead of on principle was for him even to the end of his days the most congenial course to mistake sentiment for principle the most unfailing snare the king appreciated him at the time of his secession far more justly if more severely than a house which is ever indulgent to those who amuse it i am greatly incensed he wrote to lord north after the division on woodfall's case at the presumption of charles fox in obliging you to vote with him that night indeed that young man has so thoroughly cast off every principle of common honour and honesty that he must become as contemptible as he is odious walpole with more delicacy but no less severity put the same truth in a letter to sir horace mann the famous charles fox was this morning turned out of his place of lord of the treasury for great flippancies in the house toward north his parts will now have a full opportunity of showing whether they can balance his character or whether patriotism can whitewash it his first essay in political life tried by any standard except that of mere oratorical success must be pronounced a failure coming into parliament gifted with transcendent talents and enjoying unique opportunities he had in five years become unpopular with the people hated by the king and distrusted by the house which petted and applauded him and his failure was distinctly a moral failure a failure of character and of character alone in that age of meanness and moral degeneration there were plenty of statesmen who attained to honourable posts in the state whose private life would not bear examination the duke of grafton could become prime minister the high priests of the mysteries of medenham could preside over the finances and over the navy of england yet no one thought that grafton or dashwood or sandwich should be debarred from the councils of an english king because they were debauchees charles fox was not so degraded a libertine as sandwich he was not so confirmed a drunkard as carteret or as dundas even as a gamester he was no worse than his friend carlyle though he might be more unlucky what then was it that singled out fox as the one statesman of the eighteenth century who must retrieve his character before he could be trusted in whose case alone moral failure was to be a bar to political advancement the answer to the question is to be found in the fact that charles fox's faults were faults of character not of passion faults which vitiated his whole life and not merely one department of it a man might be a libertine or a drunkard but when free from his particular temptation might have as cool a judgment and as far-seeing an eye as the most blameless of politicians but no one can play fast and loose with men in parties can treat measures as dice to be shuffled about for his own advantage and refuse to be bound by the ties of party discipline without showing that he is bringing the spirit of a gambler into the councils of the nation and playing with the honour and welfare of the country as stakes in the game of his own ambition and those who attentively studied charles fox in his youth saw how impossible it was to trust him in any matter of importance his leading characteristic was exaggeration which sprung partly from inordinate animal spirits and partly from overweening vanity 
he was always in extremes all that he did was overdone as a macaroni he was overdressed on the turf he had more bad horses in training and backed them for higher sums than any one else as a man of fashion he would sit up all night over the bottle and hold his own in the morning against any one in the house or on the racecourse when at oxford he walked fifty-six miles in a day during a tour in ireland he swam twice round the devil's punch bowl at killarney in the house his invective was so unmeasured as to defeat its own object men were amused at his insolence charmed with his dash but not convinced by his argument his idleness was fully equal to his recklessness many of his speeches even on the most important subjects were delivered without previous thought and his opinions decided by his personal dislikes at brooks no name appeared so frequently in the betting book no one played so high or lost so carelessly at the gaming table it was the excitement of the game that captivated him not the desire to win the largeness of the stake merely added to the excitement and with a true gambler's instinct he cared not a button whether he lost or won provided he had enough to stake on the next round the characteristic way in which he prepared himself for making his first appearance in parliament as the champion of religious liberty is thus described by horace walpole he did not shine in the debate nor could it be wondered at he had sat up playing hazard at almack's from tuesday evening fourth till five in the afternoon of wednesday fifth an hour before he had recovered twelve thousand pounds that he had lost and by dinner which was at five o'clock he had ended losing eleven thousand pounds on the thursday he spoke in this debate went to dinner at past eleven at night from thence to white's where he drank till seven the next morning thence to almack's where he won six thousand pounds and between three and four in the afternoon he set out for newmarket his brother stephen lost eleven thousand pounds two nights after and charles ten thousand more on the thirteenth so that in three nights the two brothers the eldest not yet twenty-five lost thirty-two thousand pounds charles fox complained of the quiet of the session and said the house of commons was always up before he was well might selwyn congratulate the landlord of the lodgings where the two foxes lived on keeping in his house the finest pickles in london he was a willing victim to the aristocratic sharpers who filled the saloons of paris and of london in the early days of george the third the harpy crew of ladies in whose degraded minds avarice took the form of gambling found in him a perfect el dorado a gold mine always ready to yield its treasures without ever demanding them back he knew that he was cheated but he rather loses money than his game at almack's of pigeons i am told there are flocks but it is thought the completest is one mr fox if he touches a card if he rattles a box away fly the guineas of this mr fox in gaming tis said he's the stoutest of cocks no man can play deeper than this mr fox during the three years which elapsed before the outbreak of the american war the passion for gaming was at its height fox himself said he had known as much as seventy thousand pounds lost in one night there was hardly an elder son among the men of fashion who had not parted with his reversion to the jews to obtain money with which to gamble 
friends like lord march and george selwyn put all they had into a common bank and each stood surety for the losses of the other lord carlisle alone had at one time lent charles fox as much as seventeen thousand pounds and each morning while the profligate was in bed his jerusalem chamber as he wittily called his waiting-room was thronged by the money-lenders anxious to suck yet deeper into the fruits of lord holland's corruption society determined not to treat him seriously either as a politician or a man of pleasure looked on with a smile half of pity half of contempt as the debts rolled up and speculated when the crisis would come it came in seventeen seventy four soon after his quarrel with lord north the birth of a son to his elder brother added a good life to the one bad one which stood between him and lord holland's fortune the boy was born said charles fox profanely like a second messiah for the destruction of the jews he was mistaken at once those worthies hitherto so long suffering began to show their teeth his father came nobly to the rescue and of the untold wealth which in the days of his political power lord holland had filched from his country no less than one hundred and forty thousand pounds went at one blow to preserve his son from bankruptcy and ruin how was it possible for the little aristocratic world which held the reins of power in the time of george the third to distinguish between the gamester of st stephen's and the gamester at brooks in every department of life they saw in charles fox the same qualities profligacy vanity and extravagance inspired his speeches and marked his actions both private and public his friends knew that behind the love of notoriety which prompted his worst excesses was to be found a clear head and a warm unselfish heart untiring patience and a sunny temper and could look forward to the time when the energy and self-assertion which now spent itself on political and social extravagance would be concentrated and disciplined by a cause worthy to enlist alike his heart and his judgment in its service but the world which knew him partly and the world which knew him not at all could not be expected to look below the surface for qualities which he had hitherto carefully concealed to most men he was still the chip of the old block the unscrupulous son of an unscrupulous father the political as well as the social libertine there is no mistaking the venomous hatred which assailed him on all sides and found expression in verses such as these welcome hereditary worth no doubt no blush belies thy birth prone as the infernal fiends to evil if that black face and that black heart be not old holland's counterpart holland himself's unlike the devil End of section three